0: Although poverty is associated with lifelong poor health, it's been largely unaddressed in medical practice. Clinicians regularly screen patients for poverty's downstream effects, such as food and housing insecurity, but they don't often focus on upstream issues. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Lucy Marshall, an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Marshall has co authored a perspective article about the potential for so called medical financial partnerships. To promote individual and community health, Dr. Marcel, what do we know about the relationship between financial well-being and health?
1: So there are several areas of financial well-being that we know directly correlate to either improved or worsened health. The first way to think about it is income. So we know that people in the lowest percentiles of income levels have shortened life expectancies compared to those with highest incomes. For instance, women with incomes in the top 1% live 14 years longer than women in the lowest 1%. Another way to measure financial well-being is thinking about assets or wealth, so your total net worth. And again, there are data that show how financially stable you are in terms of net assets is related to many different types of health outcomes. And this area is particularly notable because there are significant racial disparities. In Boston, where I am, for instance, the average white family has about $240,000 in net worth, whereas the average black family has about $8 in net worth. And then another way to think about financial well-being and health is simply financial strain So the best data here are from cancer studies showing that sudden changes in your financial well-being, regardless of your net worth or your net income, are associated with increased morbidity and mortality. So financial status across a variety of measures does negatively impact health if it is unstable.
0: So given all of that, why do you think clinicians and healthcare organizations have largely stayed away from directly addressing the financial status of their patients.
1: I think there probably are two reasons. One is that it's abstract and big picture a bit outside of our comfort zones. Certainly we have not been trained in terms of how to directly address one's financial well-being and it can be challenging to address for instance having a good job is an essential part of being financially well and that is not an easy thing to help someone with if their educational status is low or if the job market is poor. I think the other reason that we don't do it is that for many health care providers, myself included, in the moment, it often feels like whatever problem the patient is presenting you with is much more pressing and urgent than the root cause of it. So if I have a patient who comes in with asthma, they're having trouble breathing, I need to figure out how to address that asthma attack and treat it with medicine. However, there isn't really time budgeted in my schedule to then take a step back and think, well, why does this keep happening and how can I address it? So I think to really integrate this approach into the healthcare system, we need to rethink to the way we interact with patients and not just interact with them when they're having acute problems, but build in time to address these upstream causes.
0: So in your perspective article, you describe medical financial partnerships as one way for healthcare institutions to facilitate access to financial resources for patients. Can you explain the idea behind those partnerships?
1: Sure. The idea is that there are actually many resources available in most communities to help people with their financial well-being. These span a range of issues, so the focus we started with was tax preparation services or free tax preparation services available in most communities. But there are other types of financial services, too, such as those aimed at helping children and families advance their educational standing through child savings accounts and college scholarships, financial coaching, which is very individualized based on goals that you might have for your own financial well-being and a coach that works with a client on helping them reach those goals. These services are all free, but what is universal about them this, they are underutilized. And the reasons for those are varied, including that it's challenging to make time for something that doesn't feel emergent. I think we all can relate to that because I know myself, there have been times where I've avoided dealing with financial planning because it doesn't feel like the most pressing thing I need to do in my life right now. I think another reason people don't use them is that they don't know about them. We hear that a lot from families and that it's intimidating. They've had bad experiences with financial institutions who have taken advantage of them or who have charged them fees and therefore are worried that these other types of services might be just as bad. So the brilliance, I think, of medical financial partnerships is that healthcare does have trust with patients. Maybe the institution as a whole doesn't, but usually the individual providers do. And we also frequently see patients, especially in primary care, both for adults and children. So we can take advantage of that trusted, frequented relationship. To introduce these services and to integrate them for families. And the good news is because these services exist in the community, we don't have to recreate the wheel. We can build partnerships with these community organizations to bring the services to patients, either by directly embedding them in the clinic itself or by developing a system of warm handoffs with the community partner.
0: So you say that pediatric practices, like the one at your clinical institution, Boston Medical Center, have generally led the movement to implement these medical financial partnerships. What kinds of challenges do you see when it comes to setting up similar programs for adult medicine practices?
1: So, I'm a pediatrician and definitely biased in my views and understanding of pediatric versus adult medicine. But my understanding of it is that pediatric, the last 20, 30 years, has really led the charge in terms of integrating social programs into healthcare. And Boston Medical Center actually has been at the forefront of many of those innovations with programs like Reach Out and Read, Medical Legal Partnership, among others. I think a difference, my understanding at least, of a difference between pediatric and adult medicine is that pediatrics is inherently very prevention focused because most children are healthy. Or if they are ill, it is either an acute illness or maybe they have one or to chronic illnesses, asthma, obesity, something like that. Whereas adults tend to have a lot more complicated medical problems that have accumulated over decades. Another difference between adults and children is that children come in to see us much more frequently. In the first year of life, I see a child somewhere between six and 10 times for routine visits, whereas a healthy adult might only come in once a year. So there are fewer opportunities to engage. I imagine that that creates a time pressure that's even more acute than with children. So I think that would be a large challenge to integrating this more into adult healthcare, that with adults, they have more problems to address, you have fewer opportunities to address them. So perhaps have to be more creative about how to work this type of service into your practice.
0: Finally, what role can individual clinicians play in supporting the financial well-being of their patients and their local communities in ways that will ultimately improve health?
1: I think this is probably the most optimistic area for any doctors, nurse practitioners, other types of providers who are listening. This is not something that you have to wait for your institution to decide to do. You don't have to become an expert in finance yourself. It's really as simple as opening up the conversation with a family. So to give you a concrete example, right now, I'm talking to families a lot about the child tax credit, which as many of you may know, is a credit that was included in the third stimulus bill that provides families with somewhere between $3,000 and $3,600 per child under 17. Essentially, this is a cash transfer program or a universal basic income for children. So it's really essential people know about it. Every time I see a patient now, I just ask them, are you getting the child tax credit? Usually the response I met with is, I don't know what you're talking about. And so then we have maybe a one to two minute conversation in which I explain what it is. Sometimes I find out that someone has filed their taxes, they will be getting it. and I educate them about that. Other times, especially with immigrant families or families with newborns, I find they're not going to be getting it. And so then I talk to them about how we could help them get it. But in either case, simply educating people that this resource is available to them is often transformational. I had a mom the other week tell me that she's been wanting to go back to work, doesn't have a steady source of income to pay for childcare. And now that she knows that she can count on getting these child tax credit payments each month, she feels confident that she can sign up for daycare, she can pay for it. So now she can afford to go back to work. So that's a brief example of how just opening up the conversation about how someone's financial well-being is and resources that they might want to take advantage of can be, I think, really therapeutic to patients, deepen your relationship with them, and help them connect to community resources. So you don't have to provide these resources yourself, but just providing the education that they're out there can be a big step towards empowering patients.
0: Thank you, Dr. Marcel.